Well, we are reading through a children's storybook Bible most nights with our boys. And one of the things that's interesting about going through that is seeing some of the changes that it makes just to make the story more understandable for children. Um, it's also interesting to notice which stories or books of the Bible that this kid's version just totally skips. And one of those books of the Bible that it skips is the book of Judges, which is where we're going to begin our study this morning. And it's not hard to understand why. The book of Judges is one of the darkest, if not the darkest book in the entire Bible. It is filled with genocide, slavery, rape, murder, kidnapping, violent stories, oppression of women, and more. So if you filmed this accurately, if you wanted to turn this into a movie or a television show, it would have to be filmed on HBO or somewhere much more with all these adult themes. And many Christians probably would feel like they couldn't watch it because of all of the darkness and violence and sin that goes in it. So with that in mind, why are we going to study this book? Um, well, partly because I'm kind of a crazy pastor. I have this weird idea that I think the whole Bible is actually good for our understanding. And I think if the whole Bible was written by God, if the whole Bible is sufficient, and if God gave us all of it, then maybe He actually wants us to read all of it. And so maybe too that means that we should pay extra attention to those places or those books of the Bible that we tend to ignore because they're more difficult. And I think that this book is very relevant to our lives this morning. I think it still has something to teach us. The book of Judges is really the story of how a nation descends further and further and further into sin and wickedness. Does that sound familiar at all? I'm sure you can't think of any nation on earth that has ever had such a descent further and further into wickedness. And so this morning, as we kind of begin our journey in this book, we're going to go through all of chapter 1 and just the first five verses of chapter 2. We are going to see, well, how does that start? Because it's easy, by the end of the book, we'll see where it finishes, but how does that journey begin? And what we'll see this morning is that journey begins through compromise. And that journey begins when obedience isn't really complete obedience. And so first we're going to look at the setting, then we'll unpack what compromise is, and then um, we're going to look at the consequences of what happens when we compromise or when we have half-hearted obedience. And so if you would, if you're able, if you would stand with me as we read through um, the beginning of Judges. We'll do all of chapter 1 and part of chapter 2. And after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up, and behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And likewise, I will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went up with him, and Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated ten thousand of them at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and fought against him, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him. And they cut off his toes and his big thumbs. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. 
And Judah went against the Canaanites that lived in Hebron. And now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. And from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. And the name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksha, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksha, his daughter, for a wife. And she came to him and she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of Negev, give me also the springs of water. And Caleb gave her the most springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Canaanite Moses, his father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah. From the city of Palms to the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. And the name of the city was called Hormah. And Judah also captured Gaza and its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And the house of Joseph also went against Bethel, and the Lord is with them. And the house of Joseph scattered out Bethel, and the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. And that is its name till this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean, its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Eblian, or its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. And when the Israelite grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. And Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Ketron or the inhabitants of Nahalah, or the Canaanites lived among them, and but became the subject of forced labor. And Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or Alblab, or Agzib, or Helba, or Afik, or Rehob. And so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, and did not inhabit in the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. And Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, and nevertheless the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath become subject to forced labor. And the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down the plain. And the Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Haris, and Ajalon, and the Salabim, and the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily upon them, for they became the subject of forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akribim, from Selah, and upward. And now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I have brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the place of the name Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord.
The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would open up our ears and our hearts and our eyes this morning. Lord, would you help us to see with this ancient story with places and names and people who we struggle to pronounce or grasp our minds around. Would you help us to see what this story has to do with us this morning in Duncan, Oklahoma? And I pray that we will leave this place having been changed by you and your word. Pray this in your holy name. Amen. You can have a seat. So first, before we really kind of get into this passage, I need to kind of give you the setting or overview, not just of this passage, but really the book of Judges and where we're going to be as we go through the whole thing. And so point number one, if you are taking notes, is really that Jesus is the true hero of the story. Jesus is the true hero of the story. This is important to keep in the back of our minds as we read through this whole book. And really not just as you read through this whole book, but as you read through any book of the Bible. Um, but especially as this book. So we've called this series Flawed Heroes. And this book is filled with a lot of judges, right, where it kind of gets its name from. But the focus of the book is not on all of these different heroes and how amazing or great they are. It's actually about how amazing and awesome God is. And about how all of these people point to Jesus. And again, well, you know, you may be asking yourself already, even as you saw as I kind of wrestled or fumbled through pronouncing some of these names, you know, why again are we going to study a book like this? I've noticed too, if you see churches or pastors who do more topical studies, they might not go through books of the Bible. They tend to not pick studies or even pick a sermon from this book. Why is that? I'm sure there's plenty of reasons. One of the reasons is we just don't know what to do with stuff like this. And as you read it, you may have thought, or maybe you said a prayer for me, thankfully too, hopefully, of, well, pastor, I don't know what you're going to do with that. <laughs> right? But in the book and the story of Judges, is it's dark and depressing, and it's filled with lots of darkness. It's filled with a lot of sin. And as Christians, we tend to not know what to do with that. If you look at Christian art or Christian music or Christian movies, so often they avoid the darkness. They may as well be Hallmark movies because everything is bright and shiny and things get bad, but not too bad, and they're going to all get fixed by the end because that's what Jesus does. But this story is dark, and why is it so dark? I think part of the reason that it is is because the darkness reveals our need for Jesus. The darkness reveals our deep need for deliverance and salvation. The darkness really in the book of Judges reveals our need of the gospel. That every story of murder and rape and kidnapping and violence and all of the rest tells us how much we deeply need Jesus. Not just then, but still today. And the book, it's sometimes referred to as having cycles. Maybe you've kind of heard it that way, right? And we'll talk a little bit more about this where a judge rises up and saves Israel and everything's great. And then they die and Israel kind of goes back into sin and doesn't repent. And then they call out to God and then another one. And we just kind of do this over and over and over till the book ends. Well, the book, it's somewhat like that, but I think it's more than that. It's not just a repetition of, or of a cycle of the same song, different verse, so we're just going to repeat it over and over. Instead, this book is more of a downward spiral, where it might seem like things are repeating, but they're actually getting a little bit worse almost each time. Until the very end of the book, when we get there, where it's going to seem like all hope is lost. So as we go through this book, be on the lookout for, don't allow yourself to start to think, well, this seems like the same thing again. Look how they go downward. But we also, too, just need to be careful. Anytime you feel like the Bible is saying the same thing again, 
If you find yourself in your own personal reading that you feel like, hey, wait, didn't I read this? Isn't this the same thing? Why is this? I'm just going to start skimming and get ahead to something that's a little more different or exciting. Because the danger when we do that is we forget and realize, hey, every part of the Bible is significant and important. And if it wasn't, if it wasn't significant and it wasn't important, God wouldn't have put it in there. And all of these stories of all of these judges and all of these heroes are not just to beat this, the point into your head over and over and make you read the same thing. I think each of them has a different lens, a different flair, a different thing that God wants us to see in it. And so if we feel ourselves seeing that, what we need to do is we need to, we need to pause and ask ourselves, okay, well, what is this passage saying that maybe the other passages weren't? What is different about this? If I just ripped this passage out of the Bible, what would we lose? What would we not get as much of a picture of? So we have to be careful with that. But ultimately, too, this book, again, it's not about the judges. It's not about these deliverers or heroes. It is really about Jesus. All of these people, we will see that they are flawed. Some of them much more than others. Some of them are cowards. Some of them are, have also, are pursue women and fall into traps with that. They all have many things that they get wrong. But ultimately, this book is not about them. They are not given to us, I don't think, to be our role models. And I think we're only supposed to imitate them in it as much as they imitate Jesus. Or as much as they imitate God. And so all of their victories and everything that is good and wonderful about these people is made even more wonderful and awesome in Jesus. And so what is good about them, Jesus is better. But all of their flaws also point to Jesus. Each flaw and mistake and huge problem that they have reminds us that, well, they might be like that, but Jesus is an even better leader. Jesus is an even better judge. Jesus is an even better deliverer. Jesus is an even better savior. Because none of these flaws that we all have as human beings apply to Jesus. So as we look at this book, we need to just remember in the back of our minds, Jesus is the true hero of the story. But so that's the background. Let's kind of dive into the story and let's see how Israel compromises. Our second point is that half-hearted obedience is disobedience. Half-hearted obedience is disobedience disobedience. Right, you can't obey a little bit and then claim, it's good, I did what you asked God. No, God says at the end, which we'll see, this is not true obedience. And throughout this chapter, you see how it seems like Israel is obeying if you read it briefly, but as you look closer, you see how, well, they're only obeying halfway. Their obedience is only half-hearted. They're not really doing everything that God has asked them to do. They're just doing a little bit. And slowly and slowly, as you see, they are becoming more and more like the world around them. They are compromising. They're taking in the values of the Canaanites and the world and the other nations instead of what God asked them to do. And look how it starts. It starts off really good right away in verse 1 of chapter 1. Joshua dies. People go and inquire of the Lord. So they're asking him, hey, God, what do you want us to do? Who should go and fight first against the Canaanites? Okay, this is a good place. Always good to start by seeking God's voice. Ask what he wants. Get clear directions. So they do that. And God responds. He gives them clear directions. And he says, Judah, Judah, you go up. I've given the land into your hand. And so Judah says, okay, perfect. I'm going to go, God. But you know what? Verse 3, Judah said to Simeon and his brother, hey, come up with me. Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, the place God's asked me to go, and me to go alone, that we can fight against the Canaanites together. So Judah already immediately obeys 
halfway. God tells them, hey, you guys go as a people. I'm going to be with you. And they go, ah, you know what? I think we need more. I don't know if we're really enough, God. I'm going to get some help. We get someone else to come in here and help. He gets Simeon to tag along. And he also makes a deal with Simeon of there. Hey, and likewise, I'll go with you later. When God tells you that you're supposed to go somewhere and you're a little scared, a little nervous, then I'll come and help you. We can kind of help each other out just to make sure that we get this done. So instead of trusting in God's word, they went back up. And then they're also leading the other tribes and other people to step into disobedience as well. And to not trust God's word. But God blesses them anyway. The Lord, verse 4, Judah goes up and the Lord gives the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hand. And this king, Adonai Bezek, flees, but they pursue him and they catch him and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. This is a strange verse, isn't it? Probably go, why, what point does that have? That seems kind of rude, seems pretty disrespectful. Why are you cutting off somebody's thumbs or big toes? That would be pretty inconvenient. Well, you can notice right away, what do they not do? What they don't do is they don't kill him. What they also don't do is they don't just drive him out of the land. Because you notice a lot of this, too, part of the difference from Joshua and Judges is they're not even just commanded to just kill all of them as much as kick them out of the land. Get rid of them. It's okay, he, you didn't kill him, but he fleed. He's out of the land. No, they go and catch him, but not to obey, but to do something different. And instead, what they do, they're following an ancient custom, but this is not a Jewish custom. This is not a custom that God wants them to have. This is not a custom God has commanded them to have. This is a Canaanite custom. This is what the world's kings do to kings that they conquer. They cut off their thumbs and their big toes. They want to keep this king as a trophy to their own greatness and awesomeness. They have already right away started to be influenced by the people and the country and the nations around them. They're already compromising. They're obeying, they're kind of doing, what, well, God, we'll, we'll do mostly what you've asked us to do, but here's where we'll twist it just a little bit. And the king acknowledges himself, this is a Canaanite custom, in verse 7, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. There's a lot in that verse too. You actually, here you have a Canaanite king who is acknowledging, hey, what God is doing here to me and to my people and really for the rest of the book, this is justice. I'm getting exactly what I deserved. I've done way worse, and now it's coming back on me. Judah fails again later in verse 19. We skip ahead, and the Lord was with Judah, and he took in possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. All right, chariots, we really describe them like tanks of the ancient world. So that's kind of what they were. They were, you know, modern marvels for them. Israel didn't really have horses or cavalry, so especially trying to fight somebody with chariots was terrifying. And they were always tempted throughout their history to trust in the other nations and trust in the people who had chariots, because if you had chariots, you can't lose. And so here, it seems like they fail, but it's not a failure of their ability. It's a failure of their willingness. As God tells them later, you haven't obeyed my voice in chapter 2, verse 2. Why? Because they, they compromised. What they did is they packed up their bags and said, you know what, there's chariots down there. I think we're good. You know, we've taken a lot of the land God's asked us to do. Seems like he stopped helping us because that's too difficult, so we'll just quit right here. But don't let Judah take all the blame. There's plenty of blame to go around. The tribe of Joseph fails in verses 22 through 26, kind of tell their story. They obey and they go towards Bethel, verse 24, and the spies see a man coming out of this city, the city of, of Luz. And he, they said to him, please show us the way into the city, right? We'll deal kindly with you. And the spy does it, 
25, he shows them the way into the city. They take the city, but they let the man and all his family go. Now look what happens. This is significant. The man goes into a different land, land of the Hittites. He builds a city and he calls the name of that city Luz, which is still the name of it today. There's a lot to un unpack here too. One of the things is it shows them failing to destroy the city. So he just kind of packed up and moved. The fact that it's named the same thing again. And the author is telling us, hey, it's still there today. If you want to go pack your camel and take a trip, you can go see the city that Joseph didn't do what God told them to do. It was incomplete. There are also echoes and similarities to the story of Rahab, if you remember when we looked at that in the book of Joshua. Right? It's involving spies. Or that, that story is about spies being hidden in the house of the foreign woman Rahab. And she hides them. And then she expresses her faith in Yahweh. And she asks and begs for deliverance. And then because of her faith and because of her service, they give it to her. Do you see some differences between this story and that story? One of the differences is this individual expresses no faith. Because of any faith in Yahweh, any faith in God. He also afterwards, he doesn't come in and move like Rahab into God's people and become an Israelite and worship God. He goes to a different land with different gods and hangs out there instead. So I don't think this is a good thing. This seems like a purposely echoing of that story, but it's another failure, another example of God's people compromising in their half-obedience. The Kenites are another tribe compromises. They only obey halfway. Verse 16, the descendants of Can of Kenite. Of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city, and they just went in and settled with the people. They just go in and set up their tents and move into town. They don't try and drive anyone out. They don't even really try. It doesn't say they tried and then failed. It's just, eh, let's just move into the neighborhood. Maybe we'll, you know, have enough kids. We'll eventually kind of edge them out. Maybe. I don't know what they're thinking, but what, they're, what they do is not obedient. They compromise. It's half-hearted. The other tribes, one after another, they fail. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out. 29, Ephraim doesn't drive out. 30, Zebulun doesn't drive out. 31, Asher doesn't drive out. 33, Naphtali doesn't dry out. And Dan, verse 34, gets pressed back into the hill country. All of these tribes fail. Some of them try a little harder than others. Some of them drive out. Some of the people, they obey half-hearted. But if even that... And it's not just that they fail to drive them out. The people, they also, if they do conquer anybody, they don't drive them out of the land. They just make them slaves. You see it over and over. 28, put them to forced labor. 30, says it again. 33, 35, all of them about putting them to forced labor. They turn them into slaves. That's another worldly Canaanite tradition. So what the Canaanites would do when they would conquer a people, they would make them their slaves. Let them keep their gods, let them do their thing, but now they're going to work for us to show off how awesome we are. This conquest doesn't look different than the way that the world's conquests do. What we see is slowly but surely at each step, they are acting just like all of the other nations of the world. They're not conquering and doing this as instruments of God's divine justice, but they're doing it as desiring their own influence, their own greatness, their own slaves, as if they've forgotten where they were in Egypt. They compromise. There's one small story in this, kind of in, in the beginning where we have, or verse 11 to 15, where we have the story of Caleb and his daughter and Othniel. And it's held in contrast. 
And you notice it's kind of sandwiched between all, all of the rest. And I think the reason it's in the middle is to draw our attention to it. To say, here's a bunch of people who only obey halfway. And here's a bunch of people who only obey halfway. But right here in the middle, we get one family. A small remnant of people who do not compromise. Who are faithful. Who do what God asks them to do. Alongside Joshua, Caleb was the only person from the previous generation that made it all the way through the wilderness that got to see the promised land. And why did he get to see it? Because he trusted God when everyone else around him failed. And yet, here again, near the end of his life, we see he is still trusting in God as everyone else around him is failing. And so, since he's old, we, we assume, and he needs help, verse 13, and he promises, hey, if someone helps me conquer what God has given me, then I'll give you my daughter in marriage. And Othniel, the son of Canos, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. So he's Caleb's nephew, presumably. And he gives him his daughter for a wife. And so we have at least this one family that is obedient. And we'll see too that the daughter is, shows boldness and gives us an example of faith. And she asks her father for a blessing. She asks him for, for even more land, for more of a blessing. The church fathers kind of would take this and interpret it and see it as a good example of prayers. And the way that she trusts and yet boldly asks God and then is still kind of blessed by it. But regardless of what's going on here, I think some of this is just to show us here is one family that gets it right. Here is one group of people who don't compromise, who don't obey halfway, who do exactly what God asks them to do. And because of their obedience, they get an even extra blessing. While everyone else doesn't get enough, they get some, but then they're stopped. Here we have this family who gets exactly what they were supposed to get and then is blessed with even more. Why? Because of their obedience. And we're going to see this family... Again, next week, because Othniel is going to become the first judge or the first deliverer. So this is a, a slow introduction to his faithfulness that we'll see. And so this whole first chapter, I think, is just about how compromised and half-hearted obedience is no obedience. God is not pleased with their disobedience. Israel is acting like a child who is dragging its feet when commanded, go to your room, and they say, okay, and then they walk as slowly as humanly possible. You know, is that obedience? Well, I'm going. Like, no, that's, that's not obedience. Your half-hearted obedience doesn't count. And we still do this, don't we? We still can be tempted to only obey God halfway or with half of our heart or just going through the motions. Churches can often do this. Even uh, as entities where they compromise or embrace the, the values of the world for power and influence. One of the things I've been listening to this podcast, I recommend it, I've enjoyed it at least. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which is a church out in Seattle. Um, it was run by the, the pastor there who was named Mark Driscoll. He was somebody that was kind of a big influence in me when I was younger and it eventually kind of all blew up. And it's the story of this really big successful church. And how it went from a small church plant and just a little Bible study to the, became this big thing with a popular pastor who everyone wanted to listen to his sermons and every, all the other pastors wanted to be like him and go to their conferences and read their books. But inside the building, inside that place, the whole time it looked like they were just making compromise after compromise. How people were willing to overlook sin, to overlook greed, Overlook abuse, overlook arrogance, overlook sin. Well, well, we're obeying. Look. Look, the church is growing. 
Look, people are, are being saved. I mean, sure, we're compromising the values of God and we're not obeying exactly everything that He asked us to do, but we're being blessed. So this is all okay. This is what we can be continually tempted to do. We can be tempted to share and compromise on the values of the world instead of the values of the kingdom of God. And we can put success and growth and numbers and earthly blessing or the American dream over when God calls us to obey. Israel probably wanted to say that. They wanted to say, hey, we're here, God. Look, we're, we're in the land. We've kicked a lot of people out. Like, sure, you know, we're getting there, God. We're making progress. You know, we're, we're a nation. We're in the promised land now. We were slaves before, but now it's really good. I mean, two weeks ago, we had 0% of the land. Now we got 50%. So that's good. Look at our obedience, God. Aren't you just so impressed with us? And God says, no. Your half-hearted obedience is disobedience. You don't get to compromise. You don't get to do things for God in a manner that is sinful and still call it good. God will not be mocked. So this is the compromise, but what are the consequences? What happens when we compromise? What happens when we only obey God halfway? And we see point number three. Consequences that disobedience leads to judgment. Disobedience leads to judgment. You don't get to disobey God without consequences. None of us do. We may face those consequences immediately. So there are sometimes there are some things that you do it and you immediately have to deal with the consequences of the decision that you just made. Maybe somebody was, was rude to you or you lost your temper and so you just said something and then immediately afterwards you face consequences and you go, ooh, maybe I should not have let that out. But there are other times that the consequences don't come till much, much later. There's sometimes the consequences of our sin or our choices don't come out for decades. There's sometimes the consequences of our disobedience don't come until we meet the Lord after our death and face judgment. That can be a frustration for many believers and as we see those who are wicked and don't know Jesus and wonder, why aren't they dealing with any consequences? They are coming. Don't you worry. You can't disobey the king and escape the king's justice. And so the king shows up in chapter 2 to render judgment. In verse 1 he says, Now the angel of the Lord, which so he comes up and he speaks and says, You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down all of their altars. That's what I told you to do, but you have not obeyed my voice. God cuts through all of their excuses. Their problem isn't chariots. It's not that they needed better spies or better military equipment or they needed a bigger army. Their problem was that they compromised and they only obeyed God with half of their hearts. He says, you have not obeyed my voice. It can be easy to read it the first time until you get to this and think, well, maybe there's a good reason this hasn't worked. But God says, no, here's the only reason that you haven't driven out these people like I told you to do. It's because you did not obey. Look what else God says in, in verse 2. You can almost miss it. I did the first half a dozen times I read it. He asks, what is this that you have done? This question should sound a little familiar to you. Some of you have already got it, but if you haven't yet, let me read it again. Think about it. What is this that you have done? Okay, God doesn't ask this because He doesn't know. He's God. He knows everything. He knows exactly what they haven't done. But the question, it's a question like a, a parent asks. A parent asks their child, why, why would you do this? Didn't you see? Didn't you know? This question is the same question that God asks Adam and Eve in the garden 
in Genesis 3. And it's in Genesis 3.13, if you want to check, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? It's not a question, again, that he doesn't know, but you can read and almost see the heartbreak of God. God doesn't delight in having to pass out his judgment. That God doesn't love, it doesn't get so excited, it's not his favorite thing ever, I don't think, to, to pass out judgment. He doesn't rejoice when we sin because woohoo, I get to spank my children now. What we see here is, is God saying, oh, why? Why did you do this? And now because they've disobeyed, they're going to have to face the consequences of their disobedience. They will have to deal with God's judgment. Verse 3 gives part of those consequences. So now I won't drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides. God's going to stop helping them. So the reason you've done as good as you have is because I've been blessing you. Even your half-hearted obedience, even your sin, even your compromise, I've still been blessing you and giving you this land anyway. The only reason they've had any success is because God's allowed it, but now He's done. There's a warning here implied for us. Just because you are experiencing God's blessing does not mean that you are being obedient. It is very possible and is very often that God blesses us even when we don't deserve it. And often that God blesses His people, His churches, even if their obedience is full of sin and compromise. Just because things are going well doesn't mean that God is necessarily pleased with how you are living. In fact, He might just be being gracious. And so part of that judgment is He is removing His blessing. On, he's not going to start helping them anymore and kicking these people out of the land. And part of their judgment is also going to come in the future. The rest of verse 3, And these people shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. What it seems like is God is doing, He's turning Israel over to their own devices. See, shades of... Romans, right? Where God, Romans 1, where God is saying, okay, you want, to, you want to have these natural desires? Go ahead. I'm going to turn you over to your sin. See how you like it. God basically is saying, all right, Israel, you want to compromise? You want to be like the Canaanites? You want to conquer kings and make slaves and move in next door and be neighbors and be chummy? Go right ahead. See how that works. What's going to happen is you're going to end up worshiping all of their gods. And that's what we're going to see throughout the rest of this book. We'll see how this half-hearted obedience just ends up turning into complete and full-hearted disobedience. It is a slippery slope. We'll watch as their compromise leads more and more to sin. And so how does Israel respond to this rebuke in verse 4? As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words, all the people of Israel lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the place Bochim, and they sacrificed to the Lord. So they seem to repent. This is, this is good. This is actually one of the best responses we will see in the book of Judges to the people being rebuked for their sin. They even make some sacrifices there at the end to God. Which is good. The problem is that this weeping seems to be half-hearted as well. This reminds me, this is you know, kind of an example of, I think, where people are upset about the consequences but not necessarily upset about their sin itself. It reminds me of um, little Calvin. There are many times, right, so we're, we do timeout. We send him to timeout for two minutes. We're very cruel. It, you know, it's very rough on him. But he gets very upset, okay, often when he goes to timeout because he doesn't like it because it's punishment. It's good. He's not supposed to like it. But so there are times that he'll get upset and cry and say, Dad, I don't want to go to timeout. You go, well, Calvin, I don't want you to go to timeout either. It's a very easy way for you to not go to timeout. It's you just have to obey me. 
If you obey, you won't go to timeout. This is how this works. So how can we avoid judgment? It's the same thing that I think we, we see them doing here. Is they're crying, I don't like this, God. I don't want to do this. Well, okay, that's good. Just repent and then obey. Then do what I've asked you to do. That is what God always does throughout every single one of these books. If people who repent and turn from their sins and then follow God, God blesses them. God relents from his judgment and God delivers them. But if you just cry because you're upset and say, I don't want this judgment. I don't want to be in timeout. And then that's where it ends. Well, okay, you're still going to face your judgment. So part of the way we can avoid judgment is just not compromising or sinning in the first place. But look back to, to verse 1 in chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal. Okay, there's a lot of names and a lot of places, so it can be easy to skip over and think, maybe I just need a map to understand it. But some of these are significant. The, the, the fact that the angel of the Lord is coming from Gilgal is important. If you remember, Gilgal is the place where Israel made their covenant with God back in Joshua. This is where they, they circumcised the new generation again and then went into the land and they celebrated the first Passover that they hadn't celebrated in 40 years. That is the place. They renewed and reminded themselves of the covenant. So the very fact that the angel is coming from that place is another reminder of God saying, hey, do you remember that covenant, those promises that we made? Well, I will never break my covenant with you. I have kept my side of the covenant. What have you all done? God's reminding them of the promises, but he's also reminding them of the faithfulness that God has shown to them. Right? I brought you up from Egypt. I brought you into this land, the land that I swore to give to your fathers. These, you are only here because of the promises that I made generations and generations and generations ago. Back to Abraham when I looked out and said, hey, this is the land that I will give you. And now here it is, all these Years later. They're not that far removed from Egypt. Now sure, no, none of them experienced it, but it's not that long ago that they don't know the stories of their grandparents and their ancestors. And so, what do we see? I think this location here is just a reminder of God. It is a reminder of God's faithfulness. That even, that He has kept every single promise that He has ever made. And even when we are faithless, God is still faithful. And the only escape from judgment, the only escape from the consequences of our sin, is through true repentance. That Jesus himself, he offers us an escape from our judgment. All we have to do is to acknowledge and repent from our sins. But repentance, it's, it's not just that, hey, I'm really sorry, I don't want this, I, I promise I'll do better. It's, then a, it's a turning. It's actually living differently. The right response would be they weep, they sacrifice, and then the next day they go out and they obey and they do what God asked them to do. But we don't see them do that. So we have to do, we have to remember is we need to acknowledge and repent of our own sins. The Christian's life should be a life filled with repentance. We should be continually repenting and turning from our sins. So those who are unbelievers who don't know Jesus, I invite you to truly repent from your sins, not half-heartedly, not just with some tears and weeping, but with your whole hearts. And for believers, I invite us, what we need to do is we need to abandon compromise, abandon half-hearted obedience to God, because half-hearted obedience doesn't please God at all. God wants our whole hearts 
God, he wants all of our obedience. But what is the only way we can do that? The only way we can do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Jesus. That is why Jesus had to die. Because no matter how much we try on our own, we will always, always fail. But no matter how much we fail, God is faithful. And His forgiveness is always there for those who ask and who beg for mercy. So this morning we started our look at the book of Judges. We see our first point is a reminder that Jesus is the true hero of the story. Where everyone else fails, He does not. And where anyone ever succeeds, Jesus does it even better. Second point is that half-hearted obedience is just disobedience. When we compromise with the world, when we try to honor God, but in doing our own way, the ends don't justify the means. And our disobedience brings judgment. And the only way to escape God's judgment is through the blood of Jesus that we all must cling to. So the challenge for all of us we all need to repent of our sins and we need to obey God with our complete hearts not following after the ways of the world I invite our worship team to, to come back up as I close this in prayer Lord I ask that you would aid us God it is so easy to fall into half hearted obedience it is so easy to adopt the values and the ways and the practices of the world and the people all around us God, would you protect us? Lord, would you help us? Would you help us as a people to be faithful, to obey you with our whole hearts? Lord, would you call us and help us to repent of our sins? Lord, would we be a people who continually repent and ask you for forgiveness? Would we be a people who cling to the cross and to the blood of Jesus as if it's our only hope? Because it is. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand as we continue to worship through song? Amen. Just, uh, two quick announcements before I read our benediction. The first is that the Gervin family, Rob and Hannah, our new um, family pastor, they have found a house. They got an offer on a house. It was accepted. And so they are hoping to move in there the first week of October. Um, so if you can be praying for them, that that process will move slowly and quickly. They're very excited to get here um, and I'm excited to have them. So keep them in your in your prayers and in your mind. The, the other one is that if you saw there's this book, Gentle and Lowly, there's a big stack of them um, out there. This is a, a book that came out about a year ago. It's won a bunch of awards and Crossway, the publisher, was giving away boxes of books to churches. And so I found out and asked for one and they sent me a big box of about 50 copies of this um, and I, I, I read it I really loved it it is a wonderful wonderful book you can read more I'll have a little thing in the, in the newsletter just talking about it but it's really just about Christ's heart for sinners um, and how Jesus feels about us and how much he loves us um, each chapter is really like six pages long so even if you're not a reader um, it will bless you and you won't find it too difficult uh, but I just really, this is one of my favorite books that I've read in quite a while, so I'm excited for you to have it. They're, they're free, there's a bunch of copies there, there's more in the kitchen, so please take one, or if you know somebody that you think would be blessed or encouraged by it, take one for them as well. Um, just give them away till they're gone. Um, so they're back there. Now our, our benediction for this month is from the book of Numbers, chapter 6. 
says the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you.